Here we go. Welcome back to Only the Important Stuff. My name is Jeff. Thank you for checking out the show. It is Monday, March 27th. Hope you're all having a great week and have shaken off your Sunday scaries and ready to crush whatever you got ahead of you. Uh, As I continue down my collegiate memory lane, I'm excited to welcome to the podcast Mr. Brian Hunt. How the heck are you, Brian? Man, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Not as good as you. You look great, man. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You yeah do as well you 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 kept up um i follow you on instagram and I, you know you used to post your workout videos all the time and that inspired the heck out of me always has <laughs> yeah they're still happening i just haven't put them out yet so uh we'll just we'll backlog them and then we'll just make everybody feel really guilty all at the same time it'd be good absolutely absolutely um but hey man long time no talk as we were yeah. were uh discussing briefly prior to hit and record here but man what's it been 23 years yeah let's just say it out loud it sounds a little rough that way let's just say it's been a while isn't that nuts isn't that crazy how fast life just takes you off in a direction how easy it is to like lose connections with people well it's that and then like when you start adding kids into it and then you start realizing like how fast they're growing and then you realize that you're like growing exponentially faster than them almost but yeah it's it's nuts but yeah you know the, the cool thing about it is that when you actually take time to like sit down and recap and like look back in your life man it's 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 pretty sweet yeah it's pretty good stuff yeah um so super excited to have you on part of you know i you probably, I, I don't know if I've told you, like part of my why for doing this, but uh, one of the big reasons is just kind of reconnecting with friends. It's one of the things that brings me a ton of like happiness in my life and uh, being able to look back and share all those fond memories we had growing up and, you know, yeah. let my kids hear our stories and our voices and kind of giving, you know, my friends an opportunity to do that as well. But a little backstory on Brian, uh, you know, we both arrived at Augie at the same time. Um mm-hmm. You had transferred from Nebraska, right? Yeah. And, you know, so we both got there at, you know, different times in our lives. Uh, and look, calling a spade a spade, I think two very different approaches to college <laughs> <laughs> would be a kind way of saying it. You know, I was there for a good time and trying to figure out who the heck I was. Whereas, you know, if I were to define it, you you knew who you were and what you wanted and where you were trying to go with your life, which is why I always found it so interesting, unlikely, and honestly kind of funny that you and I ended up in the back of a 15-passenger van together for two seasons, uh, just sharing the road, man, and and enjoying those road trips together. What was your thought when you, because you, you had like gotten in there first, and I come crawling back, and I'm just like, hey, what's up? <laughs> what goes through your head? Well, it, it was a, it was a big difference from how we traveled in Nebraska to number one. I bet. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so getting in the back of a van, uh, felt like I was like going back in time and then to have you back there just spiced it up a little bit more, you know, it's almost like, uh, it was almost like, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to do it. We're going to do it big time, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to be eased into it. We're just going to go with it. But yeah, I mean, dude, you're a blast, man. You were so fun. And, um, if I remember you wedged yourself behind the back seat, like that was like, you're like you were way back there, wasn't it? Yeah, we were both back there, right? Like, and yeah. and so you the the side I was on had the exit row, if you will. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I could at least like stretch my legs out a little bit. Yeah, because I'm a circus midget and you're tall. I get it. So, <laughs> it, it, but it worked, right? Like I was like, this is this is perfect for me. Um, nobody else wants to sit back there. I'll crawl my ass back there, my happy ass, and uh, we'll make do. But I mean, easily we had the best. 
road trip candy. Uh, oh yeah, out of those 100%. two buses. Now, do, do you remember what I brought? Do you remember my my, my jam? What I always would bring? Uh, circus peanuts. Circus peanuts. Yeah, dude. Yes. I and, remember. And Nilla wafers. Yes. I forgot about the Nilla wafers. You remember mine? Yeah. Yours was wasn't it red tamales? It was hot tamales. Yeah. See, there we go. Hot tamales. Which is an interesting Dew. combination if you really think about that. <laughs> Just terrible for my teeth. <laughs> terrible for everything. <laughs> everything. Everything. Um, yeah. But they were fun, man. Like I, I got a lot out of those, and like being able to kind of like sit next to someone who knew so much about like honestly like everything right i was just this idiot uh you know dumb freshman who didn't know left from right up from down or anything about baseball um i've, I've kind of talked about that a lot on this like i got to college and you know learning baseball was like new to me like when i grew up i we didn't have like good coach i don't want to say that um really experienced coaches who helped you understand the game it was very much well i throw hard i can hit the ball go do your thing right and then yeah, you, right, right. you get there and like learning like okay you can't give up oh two hits you know a three one pitch is the most dangerous pitch in all of baseball right like just learning all of that stuff it was you know it, it you know it's like drinking water from a fire hose um so being able to sit next to you and kind of absorb a lot of that and seeing how you approach things was super uh helpful for a yeah. for an 18 year old freshman to kind of like understand your approach now did i implement it all eh, you know no not all the time but it helped my kids it's all good <laughs> right <laughs> um but i wanted to have you on for a bunch of reasons and i think one of the yeah. main ones is like i think you had a very interesting baseball journey yeah, I, th I think that's safe to say. Yeah, that's safe to say. Yeah. Okay. But it was it, it was a, it was a great one though. It was a great. Yes. Yeah, so whatever you want to know about it, man, I'm happy to share. I love it. So let's back up, right? Like you're 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 you know high school, playing for the famed Rapid City Post Twenty Two Legion team. Like, talk me through what that was like, because where I grew up, you know, geez, eight hours away. Like we had heard of them, had heard yeah, of right. that, that team. So like, what was it like being, you know, the guys that wore helmets all the time? Um, <laughs> rolling into fields and just dominating people. Well, see, that was the, that was, so, so if, if, if you're not familiar with like post 22 and if you're listening to this, you're like, what does this have to do with anything? And were they damaged as children? Is that why they had to wear helmets? Like what's the problem? And, but the, so the deal was the rapid city post 22 from rapid city, South Dakota, um, kind of a storied storied, uh, program. It's, it's, it's won a ton of different things from both state championships to regionals to, to, uh, to, to world series, you know, all mm -hmm. kinds of stuff in the American Legion realm, you know, now I'm in California now. And so the American Legion is like, what is that? But, uh, in the Midwest, it was a thing, you know? Yeah. So each year, like it was a, it was a, it's a tough program and it ran like a full major league program and had like the minor leagues and the, all that kind of stuff all the way through hundred guys, hundred kids would try out every year. They take about 17. Wow. And, um, and, and so you're, you, you're battling every year for it. And mm -hmm. we would start in March in the middle of South Dakota inside of a gym, uh, at one of those local high schools. And we would, we would be doing, gosh, we did everything. We would hit inside. We had sliding practice inside. We'd all come with our sweatpants and our massive pillows and our butts and we would slide on the concrete i'm not even kidding it was oh and if you slid wrong like you would catch the seam of the concrete and you would just rip your back up like it was just disgusting but but you learn to slide you know so that's fair so we would do that we're in march and 
I mean, we were working out. And so we would be in baseball from March until, you know, we always planned on playing to the World Series, which is in about September. Sure. So it was a, it was a tough program. I mean, it, it ran on a massive budget. I mean, it's probably close to a million dollar budget now each year that that just program runs off of with all the kids. And, wow. um, and so it was, it was something that, man, you had to, you had to, you had to give up a lot in order sure. to be a part of that program, which I, you know, honestly, I think that's kind of what it, it teaches you a lot about is like, okay. Um, you know, it gets you ready for college. It gets you ready for, for life in general. You know, you gotta, you gotta bring it every time that you're on the field. So sure. that was huge. Now, now the helmet thing was kind of a tradition. Um, yeah. so you know, if you're a catcher, you flip the helmet around backwards, you throw the mask on, just imagine the entire team wearing that. That's basically what was happening. Um, and it was an honor to get your helmet. Like there was like a ceremony. You had to like pull your hair back the right way. I still have phantom pains. I still do that occasionally <laughs> to put my hat on, you know, but so you get your helmet and then like, and it was nasty. It wasn't a new helmet. There's probably 700 kids that had worn that, like sure. there's, it, but, it, but it meant a lot, you know? Absolutely. But then we would go into these places and you just mentioned it, you know, like you would go into these places and you'd have your hard hats on. And I'd tell you, like, they would make fun of you. They would like, and what we would do is we would just mentally remember each one of the guys that would say something and we're like, all mm. right, it's coming. Like yeah. it's, it's coming and, and we, well, fortunately we were able to work over people and played really well and, you know, right. drop 40 on a team and they would kind of say, all right, maybe the hard hats aren't that bad, you know? So, <laughs> um, so it was, it was a, it was a really fun time. It was intense, you know, it yeah. was an intense time. It prepared me for college a lot because it ran very much like a college program. We would go on the road for two weeks at a time in high school in the summer. And, you know, we'd go on North Dakota swing and a Minnesota swing and down to the college world series and then back up. And we wouldn't see our families for two, three weeks. Sometimes we'd be on the bus that long. So, so yeah, it, it really prepared you for what was up next. That's insane. And that's kind of, um, pre specialization, right? Like that, the craze that's kind of yeah. taken over now. So that was like going on, you know, when we were growing up, not to date us, but you know, mid nineties, um, yeah. did, did that, was that required of that program essentially? Like you had to commit to playing baseball to really make it on that squad because it was so competitive or did a lot of the yeah. guys do a bunch of other things? No, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, you would even, you would sign these like almost like non-binding contracts that you wouldn't do anything else other than baseball. You know, like wow. if they're, they're, like there was a time, like I was doing seven on seven for football to try to get ready for the next season and everything, you know, playing quarterback or whatever. And the coach found out about it. He says, you had choice. You either play seven on seven, you play posts, you know, it was like, you had to decide, you know, and the other coaches in the, in the city, I mean, they would bend to that because the program was so successful that in some cases, like in some cities, football dominates. And so it's yeah. whatever football wants. And in Rapid City, man, baseball is king. And so, uh, yeah, you had to decide. And if you didn't want to be part of Post 22, that's fine. But you were going to be, you, you know, you weren't going to be part of that program. So, yeah, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. Uh, and so, like, how many games would that, would your squad play in a summer season, whatever you want to call it? I think I still hold the record for that. It's like 90 some games I played in the summer. I think it was 93 or something like that. So Jeez. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. I mean, when you, if you consider like 162 is what a, a major league team is going to play, you know, you got, you know, you're playing, you know, just South of that as a 14, 15, 16 year old, you yeah, know, that's insane. So. I'm not sure I played that many in, in high school. 
Yeah, and it's well, and, and, and it took a toll on you though, because I remember, man, I remember some time. I remember we were playing in, I think it was either Fargo or Bismarck, and my arm was hanging so bad as a catcher, like I was just, it was toast that I literally had to ask the umpire to throw the baseball back anytime the ball wasn't in play. Like I would turn around, I would hand him the ball and be like, "Dude, just help me out," you know. So I would hand wow. him the ball unless there was an actual play happening, and then of course you had to go with it. But yeah, it was it was intense. It was intense. So, so like. It's something I wanted to get into later, but since we're here, do you think that's too much for kids? Well, it's different. So now I coach my son, you know, yeah. now I'm in the travel ball deep, you know, got a you know, travel organization, all this kind of stuff. And it's just what I think is I, I've identified, I think having been in it now three, four, five years is that there is no other option. Like there, there is no other, there's not a, there's not a way to beat the system if it comes to like a travel sports or if you really want to be good at a certain sport, mm -hmm. because, because even in the high schools now, if you look at the teams, the, the teams that they're forming, they're all travel kids. So yeah. there, there is no way like Jeff Heinrich or Brian Hunt kind of comes in as a freshman and says, Hey, I'm here to play baseball. It ain't going to happen. Like you will have had to have established yourself in a big way now. All that to be said, there's all those freaks of nature that they're just amazing athletes and they can come and do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. But as a, as a general rule of thumb, it's very difficult because every sport is now specialized. So there is no, there is no like uh, balance to it. And I would also say the California lifestyle is much different than the Midwest lifestyle <laughs> because you literally can play baseball right. every day of the, yeah, there's no break. Right. Yeah. But the benefit is I think in South Dakota or Nebraska or wherever in the Midwest where there's weather, like there's a natural break where mm -hmm. I can't hit the baseball because there's four feet of snow outside. Right. But here in California, that's not an excuse, you know? So it really is incumbent upon parents to be able to say, I want to create balance with my kids. I want to create this and, and understand that there's probably going to be some give and take here and there, but it really comes down to the parents having a, having a, a having a mind in their brains that is detached from all the, the, the craziness that gets spun because it, it speeds up really fast. Yeah. My daughter's in volleyball, same kind of deal. Like it's, it's a, it's an intense thing. It's an intense thing. But um, I also look back on my career and say, I believe that those repetitions, all those extra reps helped to separate me as it came because I played more baseball and I just had more yeah. experience. I think that helped. Absolutely. Yeah. It's something I wrestle with. Um, cause my son is now right to that age where we could probably go hard yeah, and, you know, really dive into these things, but we've held, I've held back because I, I, I don't, a, I don't want to like sacrifice that personally where yeah. we are at a field every day and going to tournaments every weekend, right? Like I still want to live a life of some semblance of my own life. Um, but like hearing that, like in hearing like the commitment that has to be made is, is scary to think that like maybe a decision I'm making is going to like jeopardize his ability to, you know, take a journey in something, whether, you know, whether it's baseball, you know, playing guitar you name it, right? Like being an act, I don't know. Right. But it's my choice is going to potentially impact that if I don't like commit him into something now or within the next two years. Yeah. Well, I mean like how old is he now? Like how old's your son? He's nine. He's not. Okay. So my son, my son's 10. So, mm -hmm. so he's been playing travel ball since he was eight. Um, yeah. And, and, but the reason that we chose it was because the rec program that we had in our city was, wasn't good. 
So, so I looked at him and looked at all of his buddies and realizing like in order for them to have like the basic foundations, like they're going to need some, some assistance. So we, we found, we found a team and I originally didn't coach. Um, and it ended up being that I just, you know, me well enough. Eventually it's like, Hey, you should probably do this thing. So it's like, okay. So, Mm -hmm. but I love coaching. I love, I love, I love teaching the game. I I absolutely love it. You know, Mitch Messer and I, another mutual friend of ours, like I, he and I talk baseball all the time. I saw him down in Arizona a few weeks ago. We were talking ball the whole time. So, so we, there's, I I mean, I genuinely love the game, but I, I always try to balance that with my son to try to make sure that he's able to, if he wants to, if he wants to play football, if he wants to do basketball, if he wants, but I'm not the one that's saying, Nope, I'm sorry. You got to, so he drives the, he drives the okay, ship. Sure. So for him to be able to say, Hey, I want to, you know, he, he wants to get up at 6am every morning so he can hit uh, two buckets of balls before he goes to, 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 to school. That's not me saying, awesome. Hey, you got to do this. He's like, no, I want to work on my front hand. And can we work? You know? So those things have kind of been instilled in him. Um, granted his name is Easton. So if he doesn't do much in baseball or hockey, it's pretty much a waste of <laughs> name. Um, all that aside, but I, I, I think that, I think that travel sports can be, can be good, but they can also be the death of you too. If you as a parent don't have that ability to, to regulate your own, your own family. Um, and, and I also have thought that same thing that you've thought, Jeff, like, man, I want to have a life of my own. I want to be able to do this and this and that. But then I think back and say, well, gosh, you know, my parents, like, I remember some of my best times of my life were in the back of a car, changing clothes to get to basketball, to football practice, to then to go to baseball. Some of my best time of my life. And sure. they kind of sacrificed probably some things that they yeah. wanted to do in order for me to be able to do my thing. So I'm like, well, maybe this is just part of the, yeah. the, the journey of being a parent. I don't know. Right. No, I mean, I know, I know it's coming, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Because he's into everything, right? He plays football. He plays basketball. He plays baseball. He's doing it all. So I know it's coming. Um, we've just managed to keep it very, uh, recreational so far without like these huge time commitments, um, yeah. trying to help him find out what he wants and who he wants to try to become as a, you know, as an athlete or a person or whatever before, like, we're kind of like saying, Hey, here, here's where you're at. But there's also been times where he's doing this rec route and their teams are getting just smoked. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's frustrated and, you know, we have these conversations of, well, look, I understand the frustration, but at the same time, we only practice once a week, son. Yeah. You know, so if, if you want, if you don't like that feeling and you can't carry that around, which I'm not saying you should, like you, you should never be like, oh yeah, this is totally fine getting beat by 20 and losing every game we play or whatever. Right. But if you don't like that, then I need a commitment out of you that you're going to work a little harder and we'll find the stuff that will get you better. And cause that's all you can control. I can't control like what your friends are doing, you know, but I can, I can help you become the best version of whatever it is you want to be. I'm, I'm, I, I used to be okay at this stuff, you know, and I right. can teach yeah. you a lot. And, you know, so it's, I put it back on him to say, yeah, I, I want to go dad. Like, like that's, yeah. it's, it's time to go. And, he hasn't necessarily said I'm all in on anything yet. I can still see that uh, nine-year-old brain that doesn't know how to make you know solid decisions yet. You know, yeah, you know, I, you know, I've got a got a tee and a, and a net down here that he can take swings in. He's probably come down here twice, and I've probably taken more cuts on it than he has. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and you know, so it's he he struggles with coming down and putting in that work versus yeah, my friends are outside. You know 
playing in the snow. So I want to go do that. And I don't try to push him because I still want him to be a kid. But I do know yeah. like that time is coming. I can feel it coming where you've got to kind of say I, I'm not all in, but I want to I want to be more in than I currently am. All right. Well, then dad's going to dad's going to kind of start to show you what it takes and try and start to instill some of that work ethic, you know, cause I've been very laid back mm. with it. And that's, that's where I'm at now. And I've had that conversation with him of, um, look, it's no longer, you know, me letting you do whatever you want. It's I'm going to instill some work ethic in you. You're going to complain to me randomly. Well, then I'm going to push you a little bit without like making it uncomfortable, but I'm going to say, this is what you got to do. You got to give me 20 minutes a day working on something before you go, screw around. But you know, what's funny about that is that I had that, that same kind of conversation with my daughter um, when she was playing softball and uh, she ultimately ended up loving baseball more, or excuse me, volleyball more than she liked softball, which mm-hmm. is, which is totally fine. But what was interesting is that all that work ethic conversation that I had almost to a T, almost to the exact same <laughs> sentence structure coming from her, her assistant coach that played JV in junior high meant the world to her compared to me right. who had been at a professional level or whatever like that. So, so I think it has to click with them at some point on the, on their own, you know what I mean? And sure. it's, it's a, the most random thing. So, so for Aniston, um, that's my daughter, Aniston, she's, she's 13 now, which is crazy because the, the, the amount of thought that you have to think about for college recruiting at a 13, eight year old level is insane. It's insane. Um, because so for instance, she was, uh, she, we were watching a university of Minnesota play, I think it was Nebraska or Texas or something on TV. Mm-hmm. She's watching, watching them play. And the next thing you know, they were starting to talk about the setter. Now, Aniston's a setter. She loves to watch the setter. She's all over it. And so she wants to play, you know, wherever, like on the moon, she can't wait, but she's, so they start talking about the setter and she's amazing. And she, and they, and they just happen to mention in passing, just like you and I talking. Yeah. She, she signed to Minnesota as an eighth grader and then just kept on moving with the conversation. Well, Aniston's in eighth grade. So she's thinking instantly, holy cow, like I'm, I'm behind. Like I haven't, even got, I haven't got recruited by anybody, you know? Wow. And so all of a sudden this stress starts welling up in here. Now it's unwarranted because we know that eighth grader can't sign a letter of intent to go to a school. Yeah. You have to be at least a junior. Like we know that, yep. but to an eighth grade girl who wants to be that she's thinking, well, now I'm completely behind it. So um, if you haven't yet talked to Ross Holly yet, man, oh, his, yeah. His, I, hopefully you've done that. His just wisdom in it has been so huge. And I mm-hmm. talked to him and Aniston's kind of talked to him. So we're, 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 we're able to balance it out, but I'm telling you, like, it's, you, it's a, it's a process. Like For it sure. didn't, it doesn't happen the way that you and I had it happen to us. It's just different now. Yeah. So, so that was, you know, going on the baseball journey, you're going to be like, my next question was like, what was your whole recruitment process like? Um, Cause I've <laughs> talked to a couple people right about this and, and what it was like for them. And some people have like these great stories of, yeah, I had, you know, had a couple colleges interested in me, had to go make a decision. And then, you know, like you talked to, I talked to Andy, he wasn't recruited. Yeah. Um, Pierczynski, who was a parent, who was Augie's pitching coach before we got there, just saw him at a workout facility and said, Hey, you should, uh, you should check this school out. And so he did. And McCabe just offered him a scholarship. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like sight unseen. Right. So yeah, it's interesting. So I'm curious what your, you know, whole process, cause you obviously playing at post 22, uh, in all likelihood had way more eyes on you in your program 
uh, than a guy like me growing up in a small town in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You know, it's my story is funny though. My, my story is, is, is an interesting one. So if, if you want to hear it, I'm happy to tell it. So when I was at post yeah, there was, I mean, there was pro scouts at every game. There was, there was college scouts at every game and you know, I can, we could talk all the glory stories about me talking to the Padres or Princeton or whoever, right? That kind of thing. Yep. And, and yeah, I had some offers to be able to go and play at colleges, but I wanted to play at Nebraska. Like I wanted to play there. So uh, I was, I was a recruited walk-on to go to mm. Nebraska. Now here's what that means. Sounds fancy. It basically, they just told me what time the tryout was at and everybody else had to figure it on their own. That was how much they gave me. Right. <laughs> so, so I was a recruited walk-on. So, so that meant that I literally went into this, this thing. I went in, there was about 60 or 70 guys that, that came into this, uh, into the, into the clubhouse, right. Or not in the clubhouse, even the dugout. The head coach comes out, he looks at 70 of us, he looks us in the eyes and he says, I don't need any of you. I don't need any of you. I've recruited 25 guys that are in that locker room. I went to all their games. I've sat in all their homes. I've eaten their grandma's terrible cooking. Like I've done everything I can to recruit those guys. And those are the guys that I want. You guys are here to walk on. So I don't need you, but if you can maybe run fast, maybe get me a cup of coffee, do some laundry, then, then maybe I'll keep you. And with that, they're like, let's go. Yeah. Take the field. So for the next two days, that's what we did, right? So wow. I remember vividly I had uh, – I was able to throw four balls from shortstop, four balls from center field. I had four balls to be able to do a, a catcher pop time, and that was day one. Next day I came out, and I think I had uh, eight hacks off the tee and then maybe six to eight hacks off of a batting practice pitcher live in the cage kind of deal. Sure. Uh, and this, by the way, is, is lumped in within those 60 or 70 guys. I swear to you, I'm not even joking, Jeff. There was two or three guys that came that were so hungover from the night before because they were <laughs> frat guys that they had wandered in, and they didn't even know where they were at. They're like, oh, right. it was so funny. It was so fun. So, so for literally for two days, like uh, me and 70 other drunk frat guys, like tried yeah. out for the baseball team. Cause they all are there like, yeah, man, one day, whatever. I actually wanted to play. Sure. And so out of 60 or 70 guys, there's only two guys that made it myself and another game, right? Robbie Butler, Robbie got hurt. So he, he ended up having to quit. And so I was the only guy that made it out of those 70 guys. Wow. So I wasn't like one of those. Now Nebraska came and watched me play in the regionals. They knew who I was, but I still had to walk on with all the frat guys. I mean, it wasn't like they said, here you go. Sure. So, so my journey through that was, was that now I, I love to tell the story cause I think it's important for people to understand. Like when you come in as a walk on, uh, you literally are the no, you're nobody. Mm-hmm. So, so when you come on, uh, my locker, well, I, I didn't even have a locker at first. I didn't even have a locker. They made me take, I was a catcher. So I had catcher's gear, my, and my bat bag. And I would lug it back and forth between the dorms, which are about a half mile away. So I was lug. I mean, so I would lug it back and forth, back and forth. So I finally come in one day and I noticed that, um, that, that there was a stool by the water fountain and, and the coach had said, Hey, uh, hunt, that's, uh, that's your locker. It's like, that's the coolest thing ever. I got a stool. That's amazing. You know? <laughs> so I got a stool and I, and I still had to like lug my stuff back and forth cause they still want to use the water fountain jerks, but I had to do it. <laughs> so, so one day I come back and the stool's gone. So I'm like, well, all right jigs up, you know? So I went into the manager's office. I'm like, Hey, hey coach, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot. You know, whatever. And he's like, what are you talking about? He said, well, my stool is gone. He goes, well, of course your stool is gone because go down there. You're sharing a locker with, with Scott or I'm like, shut up. So I like ran downstairs and sure enough, most beautiful thing I ever saw was athletic tape next to Scott or it's plastic name that they didn't yeah. up. you like hunt 31. I about cried my eyes. I, I was bet. like, this is amazing. You know? So I'm like, I got a half a locker, dude. I am crushing life. So I could keep half of my gear there and then lug the rest of it back and forth. 
keep going, keep going, keep working, keep working. And then I come in and sure enough, my tape's gone. I'm like, son of a... So I go in, I'm like, hey, coach, thanks so much for the opportunity. I really wish, you know, he's like, Hunt, what are you talking about? I said, my tape's gone. He goes, Hunt, if you come back in my lot, in my, this one more time, I will cut you. But if you go down there, you've got your own locker. So I went down there and sure enough, I had plastic nameplate. Hunt was on there, had my own locker. And I felt like I'd finally like made it, you know? Yeah. But, but for me, it wasn't about just being on the team. Cause there's some guys that'll say like, yeah, you know what? I just want to be on the team. I want to ride in the bus. I want to get all the free gear and everything. Like I want to play baseball. Sure. I didn't come there just to sit the bench. So I worked and worked and worked and finally was able to start at second base my freshman year, double off the, off the left field wall in the Metrodome in Minnesota, every Minnesotan's dream, you know? Like, yeah. And, and, and it was, that was that moment. Like, so I was able to, to go from a walk-on to a starter by the end of the end of that first year, I became the lifter of the year, which meant that I was a, whatever, I lifted a bunch of weight and all this kind of stuff. But, but it was a journey. Like it wasn't just handed to me. Sure. Um, but then there was, there was a turn that came in my journey there, which, you know, we could talk about if you want, but yeah, I was, so you wanted to play at Nebraska. Why? What was the pull there? Well, so, I mean, if you grew up in Rapid City, South Dakota, like Nebraska is what you watch on TV, right? That's, really? that's you see okay. all the football, you see, like, that's, that's the school, right? Interesting. So, and it just was like, I, I, I don't know. I just had this desire to play. It was in, in the, in the, it was the, it was the big 12 when I played there. I just like, I wanted to, and I, I remember in high school, I would work out um, on my own and there was these stairs that were at our, at our basketball stadium in, at our high school. And they were you know, 60, 70 stairs at the top. Sure. So like I would run to the top. I remember it, I would run to the top. I touch the wall and say D one. And then I'd run across, run down, run back up D one, run back right, right over and over. And so my, my goal was to be a division one baseball player like, yeah. and, and, and then, and then beyond that. But like, I just had this like drive to be able to do that. And it felt like I could do it if I, if I really worked hard enough. So, sure. um, so yeah, I mean, I just busted my butt and, and, you know, God was good and I had a chance to be able to do that. And so it, it, Nebraska, right? Like, you know, I played at Augie, right? Like what was yeah. the experience like at Nebraska? The, you know, traveling, going to all these storied programs in the Big 12, you know, getting to play at Texas, Oklahoma State. Like, I mean, these are treasures, you know, in the Mm -hmm. collegiate baseball world. So what was that like for you to be able to kind of go from Rapid City, South Dakota to Nebraska and then get to, like, experience all that? Is it as cool as it sounds or after a certain point it's just baseball? No, it's, it's really cool. It's, it's really cool. So, so as, as a freshman, I mean, anytime you go to the first time, it's like the candy store. You're like, what the heck is going on? You know, like I'm in Oklahoma, this is Texas. And there's, there's Roger Clemens, you know, numbers retired in the outfield. Like, are you kidding me? You know? So, but you play three games set. So first game, you know, maybe the first couple innings you can, you can do that, but then you got to play Texas, you know, you gotta, you gotta do it. So, Um, so yeah, so it, it was really cool. I mean, the travel was, you know, it was great. I, like I mentioned rapids, the post 22 program prepared us for that. Cause we were gone a couple of weeks and like, oh, I've done that, you know, Sure. but you're staying in, staying in nicer hotels and you get a chance to, you know, they actually have baseballs that have seams on them, you know, small stuff like that. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it, I, I can't lie. It was great. I mean, they treated you fantastic at the university, you know, when it came time for, for Christmas to come around, we got crab legs and steak in our, in our little eating area just for the athletes while everybody else was eating. I don't know what, you know, wow. they would have, they would have dietitians that would meet you at the beginning of that, at the, the line to go to the cafeteria and they would pick your food for you if you wanted to. Yeah. They had your creatine 
16 doses down to the milligram to be able to, to, for you to eat it pre and post and guys would, guys would keep it and sell it to be able to get extra money. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff, but (laughs) But I mean, I, I, they, they create machines there. Like in sure. just, so I, just in my own, just me personally, I came in at 165, 165 pounds. I had four and a half percent body fat when I got there. And by the time I left as a sophomore, I was 205 with 4% body fat. I could squat 805 pounds. I could hang clean 318 pounds. And I ran a four, four, four forty. Like that, Jeez. I mean, it, or four six forty. So, they create machines. Like they know yeah. what they're doing there. So, uh, from that side of it, I mean, you have the best training in the world. You have the best facilities in the world. Um, our field was not the best. I will hundred percent tell you that. Now they have the best field in the world. But when I played, it was wasn't that good. But um, interesting. But yeah, it's awesome. So, what went into your decision to leave? Yeah. Well, it ultimately was kind of a mutual decision. There was a coaching change that happened. So when a coaching change happens, they wipe out pretty much anybody. They start bringing in their own guys, all that stuff. And I sat down with coach Van Horn and he says, Hey, you can, you can ride the bench, you know, the next two years, but I probably am not going to play you because he had his own vision. These new guys, he wanted to come in and, uh, and I just wanted to play baseball. Yeah. So I was, I was going to travel to, I was going to transfer to Iowa state. I was almost going to do that, but I actually caught wind that they were going to dump the baseball program because of the title nine. And uh, so I would have been stuck there and sure enough, they did. They dumped the program. And so I'm grateful that I ended up at Augustana mm-hmm. getting to play with a stud like you and getting a chance to play, <laughs> play there. I just, I wanted to play ball. I wanted to get a chance to, to do what I could do. And, and it was, it was somewhat coming home uh, to kind of connect with Mitch Messer and Scott Sebo sure. and some of the guys I had played ball with in the past. So, yeah. So you, so you go to Augie, obviously like you just kind of like went over a ton of, uh, the luxuries that Nebraska yeah. had right within its program and at its disposal to, you know, look, we, we were, we had nothing, right? Like we had a <laughs> weight room, but we shared it with everybody. There was no nutritionist. Um, no. We didn't have, like when I came in, I didn't have a pitching coach. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, we were just trying to figure, I was learning from Ted and Ross and Ryan, and we were just like, messing around and experimenting and then we got one when we were sophomores but it was what was that like for you right like just walking in and seeing that compared to what you had well, I mean, it was a shock. Like it's, it's a shock to your system when you're like, you know, you're like looking around you're like, wait, I got to pay for my shoes now. Like, <laughs> that's different. <laughs> Cause at Nebraska, we literally had this thing it was called the candy store. You'd walk in and you could get any bat you wanted, any, any glove that you wanted, any, any merchandise that you wanted, any shoes that you wanted at any time, you know, wow. like, Oh, this one's got a scuff. Oh, don't worry. What size are you? 10 and a half. Okay. Sounds good. You know? So, yeah. So it was different, you know, it was different, but I knew going in that was going to be different. And, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody that, that believes that, um, you know, God's got this great plan for our lives. And I just trust that, that that's where he wanted me to be. Sure. Um, but it was, it was really hard. It was, it was super hard to, to make that transition. But what the beautiful part is, is that I just love the game. Like I love playing. I mm-hmm. love competing. I love being with my teammates. So whether that's in a, in a, in a plane next to a, you know, future all-star in Ken Harvey um, playing for Nebraska, or if it's sitting in the back eating hot tamales and, and Nilla wafers with my boy, <laughs> Jeff in the back of a van, like it, it all has its memories. It all has its time. So um, absolutely. But yeah, that's the stuff that on honestly as well, like, you know, you're, you're talking about that. We're joking around about it a little bit. That's the stuff that I remember probably more than the games themselves. 
Well, at least <laughs> yeah. for myself. Like I remember, and I, you know, I talk with Ross and Andy and all these guys about it. Right? Like I remember all of your performances because um, I took just I just took a ton of pride in seeing everybody like be successful. Like I wanted all I wanted us to do well, and so when you know when Ross throws a perfect game down in Missouri, you know I'm probably way more excited about that than anything I did. When Andy hits four home runs against Northwestern Iowa, I'm jacked. Like when, when you, <laughs> this is a hilarious story. When you got, I, so I think you got hit in the head by a I pitch did. and then hit a grand slam in your next at bat. Like to me, to win the game, yeah. 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 It was a game winning grand slam. To me, that was like the best, like, you know, up yours, right? Like moment to that team in my life. Like I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm pretty sure you were concussed. But. I was, yeah. I saw three balls. I hit the middle one. <laughs> like those are the things that like to me like stand out. And then just the being with the guys, whether yeah. it's doing stupid stuff on the practice field or the road trips. And, you know, I got that Florida trip, staying in that crappy hotel. <laughs> those really crappy hotels that had like yeah. bullet holes in the windows like and everybody freaking out like those are the funny things to me that i remember more than anything not just like the ball right and so yeah. it's that's where you make your memories right and that's what makes you a team is like going through that stuff together so it, you know by contrast like even though you know nebraska was you know top tier you know, being able to fly on planes, getting whatever gear you wanted. Was it a bit more like corporate playing in that environment oh, yeah. and a, a bit more stale? I, I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I mean the, the locker room's a locker room. So I think like that's like this insulated place where that same kind of stuff happens. You know, mm -hmm. like I could tell you stories about, you know, when we're at Nebraska and some of my, my favorite memories are when, um, you know, thinking about, we, we get, we got done with, uh, we were playing Texas tech and we got them playing and we got destroyed. And so the, the guys got destroyed that night. And so they came to the, to the airport, like hung over that morning. And, uh, and at first I kind of, I went to the bathroom and they were all like passed down on the side. Next thing I know, I come out of the bathroom and um, they literally had taken over the, the, the luggage cart and they were driving it all around. They were like riding on the, like all this crazy <laughs> stuff, the exact same stuff that happens at D2, D3, NAI, yeah. right? Because these are guys being guys, you know? Absolutely. So, so that stuff doesn't have a division with it, you know? Right. That's, that's just, you know, whatever. So, so some of that stuff happened in Hawaii when we're playing University, University of Hawaii. We were playing Missouri Tech, Western, Southern, whatever we were playing, you know, it's, it's all fun. So, and, and I guess even to circle back, like that's, and I would guess that this is what you want for your kids too. Like, that's the experience I want my kids to have, right? That, that's what, almost like I, why I want them to play college sports more than anything. Like, yeah, it's great to play sport, but I want you to have that. I want you to have this, you know, I want mm -hmm. you to have that something different than, than, than other people can get because of this game we get to play. Yeah. It's. You know, it's interesting, right? Like, guys, I have this conversation with my wife because she's always like, you don't talk enough, um, which is I don't fine. believe that for a second. I don't. So like, anyway. when I'm not behind a mic, I, I'm pretty quiet. But, um, you know, I've always said, like, look, guys, girls bond face-to-face -face having those conversations. Guys bond side-by-side, -side, right? So whether yeah. it's, you know, you know, going to war uh, playing a sport, you know, doing an activity together. That's where you like find out who's who and who's got your back and who's on your team and 
who's who's riding with you you know and so yeah i would love for my son to play collegiate sports that's awesome it's also a you know a reduction in what i'm gonna have to shell out when he gets to college so that's outstanding (laughs) but i just want him to like enjoy sports and because it's such a good bonding experience you know some of my some of my best memories playing sports are high school football you know because that's that's it's just the biggest team sport you can you know possibly create and you have just this huge group of guys that are all committed right and it's just you feel like such a part of a team um that that, that's just what i want for him you know what whatever wherever that takes him wherever he goes with it you know that's gravy um but yeah playing sports is to me an integral part of like figuring out who you are and the type of person you're going to be um yeah just as a friend as a leader as a teammate you know can you work with others are you one that takes you know all those things like it's all right it's just a small microcosm of life right and then there's obviously all the fun stupid stuff that comes along with it that you know you'll you'll that comes out at the end. So it's that you'll remember more than anything, but you, yeah. you learn a lot about who you are when you're going through the, you know, you're tested by fire in those, in those well, situations. Yeah. But I also think that for, for me, like I always, you know, when we, when we pray with our kids before we go to, they go to bed, like we remind them, like you're not defined by what your batting average is. You're not defined no. by these other things. Like you, you, you're more than that. So I think where, if we come circle back to travel ball parents, I think sometimes they get so caught up in this is who my child is yeah. that they lose sight of the bigger picture of who, what, what really is important. So, so I think from a, like a, that general sense, like that's important for my kids to, I, we always try to remind them of that. Now my wife, she ran at Augie too. She was a fantastic athlete also. Mm-hmm. So, I tell our kids, I say, you've got this advantage and disadvantage because you have both parents that have played collegiate athletics, know what it takes to get there and did it at a, at a, a, a really good level. Yeah. So that can either be to your benefit or your detriment. So we try to balance that a little bit when we talk to them and make sure that they know that there's more to it than life. Do you think that they feel that pressure at all? hundred percent. My daughter, a hundred percent. My son is so aloof to life. He's just like, whatever. He just, he's so fun. Like he's so fun, yeah. but Anison feels it. Like she feels yeah. it. And, and as much as we tell her, like, sweetheart, you, you don't have to, if you never, that's, it, that's okay. Right. But I said, but if you want to, like, if you want to pursue this, then we can help you do that. But we also are going to be really, really brutally honest with you about what it's going to take to be able to do that. So, yeah. Cause that was something I wrestled with growing up. Um, my dad was, you know, all world basketball, all American at SDSU, you know, would he, I found some clippings a couple years ago. He scored like 75 in a high school basketball game. Like he was That's insane, crazy. right? And every time we practiced, it was always, I'll never be that. Mainly because I'm not six, seven, like he was. <laughs> Um, but also just like, that's like a net, that's a different level. And so I always felt that pressure. So I like basketball was, I only played it because my friends were on the team, right? you know, and I never tried hard enough out of that fear of not living up to that. And so, well, if I don't try, you know, they're, they can never judge me for it. And it's something I don't want my like kit, my son to feel, especially with baseball. Uh, you know, he, he goes down in the basement and he sees all the balls and, you know, sees the jerseys and sees that stuff. So I, I'm hesitant to push, but at the same time, like you, like we both know like what it takes. And so if you want to get there, it's, it's such a delicate balance. Like, I don't know, I struggle with where to go next 
with him, you know? Yeah. Because I don't ever want him to feel like that. Yeah, and that's why I think if you can surround him with good coaches that sometimes are a different voice than you to be able to say similar things than what you're going to say, it usually makes the biggest difference. Um, so, like, we've been very intentional about the volleyball players that we surround Aniston with, like even mm-hmm. some of our neighbors. And, you know, one of our neighbors is going to be playing base or softball at Nebraska, which is super cool, but she loves Macy. And so just being able to hang out with Macy and seeing her work ethic is more influential than us saying, hey, you know what, you got to – got to take some extra time or whatever. And so now she's coming to us and saying, hey, can we rent some court time? And so I'll be with Anison from nine to 10 at night. Cause it's the cheapest court time we could find to be able yeah. to rent. And I mean, you know, but that's her saying, dad, can we go do it? And that's when I realized that she really cares about it and loves it. And sure. it's not like us that somehow like fighting these demons or fighting these ghosts of our, of our lore in the past. Cause yeah, I mean, those, those days are gone. Right. So, yeah. And I've, I've been very hesitant to uh, coach yeah. for that reason. Right. I, I want him to learn cause I've seen it, you know, like, and I'm sure you have as well, right. They'll listen to someone else as you've mentioned a couple of times way before they'll listen to you. They could say the exact same thing. But yep. if someone who's not dad or mom says it, it registers for some reason. So I've been very hesitant to jump in. But this year, I got roped in. And, okay. you know, because okay. I would always put down, I'm willing to help if you need it, you know, but I'd prefer not to. And they, they came to me like, well, you played in college, right? And I was like, yes. And they're like, we really need you to help us coach and, like, lead, you know, help lead program and, you know, develop a throw. And I was like, all right here we go. Right. And so now I just know like, this is it and we're in it and hopefully I can get some good assistance that I can like share with them. Like, here's what, here's what he needs to be doing. Can you please pass along this information? So it's not me having to tell him that all the time. Yeah. I don't know. I I'm, I'm a little worried about that. (laughs) Well, and I think it's right to be, cause I, I, same thing. I mean, I've butted heads with both my kids coaching them and, and I've had to really kind of dial that back and, and I've, I've got like unspoken agreements with other coaches, like, Hey, I'll coach your kid. You coach mine, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I'm also, I'm also careful about who it is, but, but then at the very same time though, I think back to my development and my development as a baseball player happened with volunteer dads. One of them was a construction guy. The other guy was an insurance salesman. The other guy, like before I got to post yeah. 22 and they knew what they were doing. Right. But, um, so, so it's, it's possible for them not to be completely scarred from the game and still end up. Okay. Sure. Absolutely. But I, but I also think back to say, man, it would have been great to have been taught the right way to swing. Right. But, away. You know, Cause I, and, and I don't know about you. I never, I never had, I never had a hitting lesson. I never had a fielding lesson. I never had a catching lesson. None of that. Like I didn't have a private anything, you know, yeah. like I didn't have, I didn't have my own room. I didn't have a private room. Like I was sharing my room, with my brother. So, so, so all of that has completely changed the game because everybody comes in and coaching has become harder because of that too, because now you aren't just, you aren't just coaching Johnny. You're coaching Johnny who's being coached by his dad, by his hitting instructor, by his catching instructor, by his fielding instructor. So the things that you want to implement with Johnny have to be filtered through those other four people and you might get them to take a little bit. So unless you have better credentials than those other people, you basically are coaching a team of independent contractors and you're having to just kind of bring them together to do the very best that you can. 
but the parents will come and destroy you if you don't play Johnny enough, if you don't win enough, all this kind of stuff. But then again, you also can't coach them as much. So it's really hard to be a coach. I love it. I coach at the, at the 10, the 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old, and I also am an assistant varsity coach at a high school. So I, I do the whole level of everything. So I, I see it all. So how do you handle the parents? Um, you know who I, you know me, right? Like my reaction is going to tell them to go, you know, piss up a rope, right? Like get out of here. You don't know what you're talking about. Leave me alone. If you think you can do better, have at it. Right. Like, so how do you, how do you treat those situations when, you know, Johnny, what's his name? Who doesn't, who's never played anywhere. Like tries to tell you, I think my, my son, cause I had this, I had a great conversation yeah. with Ross as well about this. Uh, cause he's dealt with it in Texas. So I'm just curious from your perspective, how you try to handle those situations. So you got to throw all three of us on at some time. That would be fun to bat that around. That'd be a blast. But mm-hmm. so, I, I mean, my, my, uh, my profession as, as being a pastor, right. Uh, that, that influences everything I do. So, yeah. so I try to keep a bigger perspective on things as much as I can, but I've also, I mean, this is a true story. I, I'll, I'll tell you two, two true stories. Uh, one that's personal to me and one that's uh, personal to a friend of mine. Uh, I, we got done. I, we had a 10 U team, our 10 U team, my son played on our record for 18 months was, I think it was 78 and 10. Like we were 78 wins and 10 losses and that's playing competition in Arizona, locally in California. It's not so 78 and 10. Yeah. We get done with in Arizona, we split down in Arizona and, um, and, and we came back and the, the, there, there was an uproar with the parents. They literally formed this like coup against me and my assistant coach after one of our games. And uh, they were, they were completely outraged at the fact that uh, they wanted it. Everybody wants something different. So in one breath, they'll say, we want to be, we want to play more tournaments. We want to be more competitive. We want to win more trophies in the very same breath. The, the parent will say, but I also want my son to play more and to be able to get more playing time so he can develop to become this. And then in this very same breath, they want to say, well, we also want to have balance so that we can also have time to be able to spend away with our, our family. So, so in order for us to win, Johnny, you're not going to play because you aren't going to be able to get developed because you're terrible. Right. Mm-hmm. But they don't want to hear that. Yeah. But if we want, if we want everybody to play, then we won't win as many games. And so these parents will leave. So we had three or four parents who just left from a 78 and 10 team to be able to go someplace else where they're able to do, I don't know, whatever. Right. So, wow. so that's, that's the, that's the side of parenting. That's super. I love coaching the kids. I hate coaching the parents. Yeah. I'll say it over and over and over, but then it even gets more extreme, Jeff. I'll tell you this. So a, a, a lady in our church calls me up and she's literally in tears. And she says, she says, Pastor Brian, Coach Brian, whatever I'm going to be, whatever hat I'm wearing at that time. She yeah. says, I don't know what to do. Let me tell you what happened. Her husband coaches her daughter's 10 or 9U, 10U soccer team. They pull up to, a, to practice for her son, who he happens to coach this team. But the daughter, one of the daughter's, uh, one of the daughter's team's dad's, gets out of the car and comes up to the, to the car. And as this gentleman gets out, he approaches him in, in the face and he says, you're not playing my daughter enough. She's only getting this amount of time. He's like, no, no, what, what are you talking about? And he says, uh, and, and he's dead serious. He looks at him, he says, I'm going to kill you. This is how I'm going to do it. Jesus. This is when I'm going to do it. And this is what I'm going to use. And this guy is a special weapons operative. So he has everything that he, and he's a former like Marine guy Yeah. and threatens this guy in the parking lot. 
somehow gets away, gets in his car, he drives, the guy follows him. And so this guy has to drive to somebody else's house to be able to like hide out because he doesn't want this guy to know where he lives. Yeah. Calls, calls the cops or calls his attorney friend and says, Hey, what do I do? Like, do I call the cops on this guy? He says, you can call the cops. They will hundred percent arrest him. They'll keep him overnight, but you also have to wrestle with this. What is he going to think about over those next 24 hours while he's in jail? And do you want to risk what he might do when he gets out of jail to you and your family? If you do in fact get him arrested. So this guy ends up having to quit coaching, has to leave completely because he's like, I'm not going to risk my life for 10 U girls soccer because this guy might kill me. And he has every possibility and every resource available to him to actually do it. So he left coaching because of that. And so this is the, this is the stuff that you really have to wrestle with when it comes to, when, when it comes to kids sports. It, it, and you see the YouTube videos, you see all that stuff and you could say, Oh, that's crazy. Who's going to run on a court and do that. I'm telling you right now, there's a guy that probably would kill this 10 U soccer coach if he had a chance. So there you go. Good luck coaching, Jeff. You're going to do great, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully I also have guns and means, but, um, there you, go. you know, then like you're going to be fine. That, you know, that's not the answer used to be my go-to move, right? Is, uh, but I, how do we get rid of that? As a, as a, I, I don't know. You don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. It's just a, an interesting talking point. Is how do we get rid of that stuff from this? Because that is so harmful, not only to you know that individual and the guy who potentially might do it, but like that that child. Yeah, it was right there when it happened. You know, is seeing that, and you know, is do you? I don't know. I don't even know where to go with that. Right? Like that's just so messed up. I can't comprehend well, like being in that scenario and handling it appropriately. Well, well I think so I, I, in that scenario, I don't know what you do in that scenario, but the broader thing is, I think it's the, it's this P word it's perspective. Like if you can't keep perspective in what you're doing, no matter what it is, you're going to lose sight of reality. Yeah. So if you can't keep perspective in politics, you're going to lose your mind. If you can't keep perspective in your job, you're going to become a workaholic and you're going to negate your family. If you can't keep perspective with how many dogs that you have, you're going to end up with 250 pounds of dog (laughs) and 200 pounds of cement at top of the thing. Like that's what's going to happen in your life. Right. Yeah. I'm joking, but, but it's perspective. So if you can't keep perspective, when you come into a, into like nine, 10, 11, whatever it is, you're going to have a hard time coaching. You're going to have a hard time not going there because what happens is that I believe this happens is that when you're, when the parent starts to yell at their child for not doing something or yell at the parent or yell at the coach for not doing something, they're not yelling at them. They're actually yelling at themselves. Mm -hmm. Like they're fearful that they're the adult is going to be embarrassed by Johnny or Susie's lack of performance so if Johnny and Susie put, perform bad, mom and dad on the sidelines are going to be like, nice kid or like whatever. And so they're actually looking more selfishly out for themselves than they are for their child. Mm-hmm. And so you have to keep perspective in this as much as you can. And, and then the other side of perspective is this honesty about what your child can really do. Yeah. Like your child might not be able to play baseball and that's okay. Yeah. But he could be a great swimmer. Right. So there's, there's perspective. I think is key. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I agree with you, right? Like not everybody can play in the big leagues. Right. And so, uh, you know, when I've coached football, you know, I tell them, you know, straight up, like, here's what we're going to try to achieve this year. 
you know, just knowing like where kids are generally at, you know, we're going to try and make sure that we can, you know, throw 10 yard passes this year. That's going to be our goal. And obviously we hope to win some games and have fun along the way and all this stuff. And very similar, right. Uh, with baseball, you know, at this age, it's, you know, we want to make sure we've got a good fielding team. That's going to be our focus, right? So don't, don't get caught up because we're not doing the travel thing yet. You know, don't get caught up in the wins and losses. I'm trying to develop players because, you know, my belief is nobody's going pro when you're nine. <laughs> it's yet to happen. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, maybe, maybe some kid will eventually, but it's not happening yet. And you don't know how talented these kids are yet. You know, when I was nine, I was the worst player on the team. Then I had a growth spurt, and oh my gosh, now you can throw the ball 90 miles an hour, so you get to play more, and that's going to happen to yeah. all of them at some point. Either they're going to get past or they're going to surpass those that are around them physically, and I can't teach that yet, but I'm going to give them fundamentals and try and do that. And I, to me, I wish there was, and I'm seeing it a little bit more, like just this no tolerance um, all the way around, like, and that leagues communicated with each other. Because somebody could be in my league and have a, you know, be that parent that, you know, is just an asshole, right? I'm just going to call it straight up. Like they're, they're inappropriate. They're rude. They treat everybody, you know, like dog crap and they get kicked out of the league. Well, they just go down the road to the next league and they join that one and they do it again and they go to the next one and they do it again. And I wish those leagues like would communicate more and just keep that person out of sports. Like you cost your child this but then again that's punishment to the child and that's not right either right so it i don't know the balance i wish i you know and i don't know anybody who knows the answer um but it's not cool (laughs) well honestly i think part of the answer would be is if if recreation programs could have a higher caliber of coaching that would keep the kids from having to translate into travel ball so quickly I think that you could have some of that perspective actually happen, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you for like locally in our town, the reason that we jumped to travel ball is because there was this massive decline that all of the kids left when they were seven or eight from rec ball because there was no coaching and there wasn't. So, so exactly what you said, I think can keep the balance if in here, and this is sad to say, when money becomes involved, when I start to pay for my son's uniforms and all this kind of stuff, and we're traveling to different places, all of a sudden the expectation goes higher. Yeah. But the sad part is, is it goes back to the question that you asked me about as you got up in baseball, was it more fun? What, I mean, I, I see kids not enjoying baseball or any sport really as much because there is this probably conversations on the ride home. Hey, do you know how much money I'm paying for you to be able to do this and this and this, you better this, this, and this. Yeah. And all of a sudden you place this pressure on them. That doesn't happen in rec ball. Right. Because you're not going to say, you know, I paid $15 for you to play seven weeks of rec ball. You know, you know you're not going to say that, you <laughs> right. know, uh, right. or this or this private hitting coach that I gave you is 400. So I think, again, some of that is on the parents like you have to. Absolutely. It, it's like getting it's like making your kids um, like telling them how much their presents are for Christmas and then making sure that they really appreciate how much they are instead of genuinely just giving them a gift the gift of yeah. a lesson, the gift of whatever, because you love them. Like yeah. you don't put that weight on them. Right. So I, I just think that that's, that that's something that if you could increase the rec p- program. So if, 
if the South Dakota model was the right model, like that I didn't have the pressure of, of travel ball until I was 14 because that's when post started now it ramped up quick, but I had 14 years of enjoying the game and just hanging out with my buddies until it actually came really real. So I don't know. Yeah. And you know, you, you brought up a a good, uh, uh, you, you mentioned like kids not enjoying baseball. Um, as a coach, as someone who's been doing it for a little bit and somebody who played, right? Like, obviously, you yep. love the game. Um, mm-hmm. How do you try to translate that to a to an eight, nine-year-old? What do you do? What are, what have you done in your practices to, to get them to really enjoy the game? Because, you know, look, baseball, there's a lot of standing around if you're not running a practice the right way. So what are you doing uh, when you're out there with the team to try and keep them all involved and help them understand how fun it is and, you know, really enjoy what they're doing because they yeah. can't all hit at the same time, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you hit on something that I think most coaches don't do a good job of. They don't run a practice the right way. Like, so if you would come to one of our practices, like I, I run it like I would a college practice actually, believe it or not. Like I, I print off the, the practice mm-hmm. plan. I show yeah. the kids what groups they're hitting in. I show the drills that we're going to be doing. I show the one, like I show them everything. And then I place the responsibility on them to have read that, to understand that so we can move from drill to drill quicker, yeah. like so that they at least understand. But then I also make sure that there's, that there is, between 15 at max 20 minutes of work that's done on each individual drill. So that everybody's doing something all the time, hitting stations or rotating between groups of three or four. Like, so you keep the game energetic because kids have a detention span of a goldfish. So you've got to continue to keep them moving. And so I think part of the reason kids don't like baseball is if you do think all I do is stand in the outfield and wait to shag balls for an hour, (laughs) that's brutal, right? You don't need to do that. So, so I think part of it is that, The second thing that I try to do is I try to create just small competitions within each practice to try to get them to get the, that, that enjoyable of competition in there. So we'll do King of the outfield. So the last person standing that catches a fly ball is the winner. They get a, they get a a candy bar of their choice. King of the infield, same thing. Last one, not to boot a ball gets it right. So there's little competitions. Um, I started this thing called an eight minute game. And if you're not doing this, your teams, it's the best thing I think you can do for them. Eight minute game. Split your teams up, your team up into, if you've got 18 on a team, that'd be great, nine and nine. But most of the time it's like seven and seven or something. And then you start a clock at eight minutes and, and I'm throwing batting practice. I throw to them and we play a real game. They hit the ball and they advance on their own. Like you're getting outs. Once you get three outs, you clear the bases, but the clock still runs. You keep hitting. So you get more at bats and more competition. Once eight minutes is up, doesn't matter where you're at, clear the field. Next teams are up. Then they get to go. So you don't have to stand there for, 10 hours waiting for three. So, you know, we can get a mini squad, a mini squad, eight minute game in, in probably 45 minutes, 46 minutes or something like that. And the kids love it. Winners get a popsicle, something like that. So there's some sort of reward. So I think that's another way that you can do it. Continue to make the game fun and try to put that competition part into the game because that's really what gets kids excited. Yeah. And then I'll just add one, one other thing that we try to do in our, in our cannons organization is that we try to make sure that we make sure the kids know that there's more than baseball. So we have um, about once every month, maybe once every other month, some sort of opportunity for them to do something beyond baseball. So uh, we do an event called Night to Shine at our church. It's a special needs prom for kids. And so we bring our entire organization out. They are on the red carpet. They clap for people with special needs as they come into their prom. Uh, we do another event where we, we harvest 
uh, oranges and citrus from fruit around that, that area. And we give all that to the homeless. Um, we give them a chance to be a part of cleaning up different community areas. So we really try to help them create teamwork by also mm-hmm. giving back to their community. And it's been really cool to see. And then the parents are involved with that also. So there's some unity that happens there. Yeah. So just little things that I think help them understand that being a leader is more than just on the field. It's also off the field. Life yeah. is bigger than this game. And then to keep the game fun, man, we just have a lot of fun in practice as much as we can. Now, winning doesn't hurt, but it also uh, yes. it also is important to keep that in mind. Yeah, 73 and 10 uh, makes those practices a little easier to swallow. <laughs> yeah, man, they're fun, boy. They're a fun group. That's fun. Uh, but, yeah, I think the gamification of practice is one of the things that I've, heard, I've read a lot about because – you know, a lot of my friends have coached, they, they all say the same thing, right? It's like, you have to plan practices. You cannot just, you know, wing it and, you know, hope for the best. And so I've been doing a lot of research of that, right. And just trying to figure out ways to make, you know, to create infielding games, to create, you know, little hitting games, you know, and break them up into smaller groups so that they're all actively involved. And, you know, there's not 100%. just some kid out in right field chewing on the end of his glove. <laughs> for an yeah. hour. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, well, and I, and that even translates to the high school. Like I do that with our high school kids now too. I mean, it, it's, it's transferable all the way up. And what we want to try to do is prepare our kids when they're younger so that when they get into a higher level baseball, that they're the ones that stand out just because they, they know what to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. So we were having high school practice once and a couple of our 10 year olds were there just kind of with my son and another kid was there and we were doing a relay drill with, uh, with the outfielders and they were botching it. And so I, I literally took my 10 year old and like, Isaiah, get out there, show him. And so he, he did it perfectly because he had done 500 reps in our practices and he enjoyed it and had a good time, but he did it perfectly and showed our high school kids, juniors and seniors how to do it the right way. So for me, I was like, okay, maybe something's working. So yeah, absolutely. Good for you. Good for you. Um, Changing gears, and you've mentioned it a yeah. few times, uh, your career profession, or probably more appropriately, a, I think you'd call it a calling, right? Uh, you're a pastor. You, you yeah. it, it, Talk me through kind of like that. I don't want to like misspeak and, and say you're, you're just a pastor. You, you, I know you do more than that. So, you know, <laughs> what got you into that? What was the, you know, the genesis for you to kind of pursue that as this is what I want to do with my life? Yeah. Floor is yours. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, after, after, uh, so Nebraska then got to play at Augie and then I played professionally for a couple of years, the Sioux Falls Canaries. Uh, and then at, when I was doing that, when I was playing for the Canaries, I was actually working at the McKinnon hospital health and fitness center. I was doing two jobs. I would, I would work from 4am till 11 as the, uh, the, the members as a fitness instructor at the, the gym. And then from 11 to, uh, or excuse me, 11 to about 11 at night, I would be at the, the ballpark. So I would do that all the time. But eventually, as I retired from baseball, I chose to to get involved in in business. And so that business moved me from Sioux Falls to Chicago. And when I moved to Chicago, I worked for about six or seven years in the health and fitness industry. Okay. But all the while I was there, I was actually going to this church called Parkview Christian Church. Um, yeah. And uh, it was just a, it was an awesome church. It was a great chance to meet my my one of my dearest friends, Pastor Tim Harlow. And and I I started to realize that I think God had wired me for this, like this sort of thing. And I remember going on a, um, on a trip down to Arizona with our church and there was a guy speaking, his name was Mike bro. 
And you can call me crazy, but God like audibly spoke to me and says, this is what you're going to do with the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And so I fought him for two and a half years. And I remember going up to the fitness center. I would drive two and a half hours, one way to work and then all the way back. And I would dry heave in the parking lot when I got to the fitness center because I hated my job so much. It was like God was like purging this out of me. And so finally I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And I jumped from uh, the business world. I was the, I was the youngest executive in our company's history at 23. Like had all this like up and to the right kind of thought. And I'm like, no. And so I jumped out of that into ministry, took a $30,000 pay cut, decided to become a pastor. And it was the best thing I ever did in my life. And, mm-hmm. and Sheree will tell you to this day, my wife, Sheree will say that I knew this was going to happen at some point. Like she just, she kind of knew this was my trajectory. And, and finally I was kind of embracing it. And so I, 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 yeah, I did the baseball thing. I threw batting practice for the white Sox for a year while I was doing the, the business thing. And then, and then I eventually just became a pastor and I, I ran, I, I was the first multi-site campus pastor in Parkview and in the Chicago area for seven years. Then after that, God called me and said, Hey, listen, I, I, I need you to actually run a church and to lead a church yourself. And so that ended up taking me from Chicago out to California where I'm at now. And it's been a, it's been an amazing ride, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I was going to say like, how do you, how do you get into that? Right. Obviously like faith was a big part of your uh, life in college. As I mentioned, we were very different uh, as kids, like on a team. Um, but you, it was always something that was a part of who you were and uh, at the forefront, you know, like I think we all knew, right. Like, it, it, it's important to Brian, um, you know, and I, I, I think we all did a pretty good job trying to respect that. I don't know. Maybe not everybody of course did, you did. Yeah. but, um, you know, everybody's got their own belief system, whatever they may be. But how do you how do you kind of say like that, you know what, this is what I need to do with my life? Like what got you there? Like what pushed you past? Because it's so hard when you're when you're having success, right? You're you're on this upward path to say, I got to I got to go. I, I yeah. need to go do this, whatever this, you know, and in your case was being a pastor. Yeah. Well, I mean, as, as again, somebody that, that whose faith drives everything that I do um, and has for a long time, you know, what I, what I truly want to do is I want my life to matter. And I, I want at the end of my life to have looked back and said that, yeah, what I did was made a difference, but that also was honoring to what God had wired me to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, he gave me some talents to play baseball and he gave me some talents to be able to, to, to run business and things like that. But there was this deeper thing inside me that, that, um, that I just, I, I think that if anybody that, that I, I, I believe that really, um, that has God in their life and, and really wants to lean in and ask him hard questions of what do you want to do? What, what would you want me to do? God, in my life mm-hmm. that I believe he would, he would, he would give you opportunities for you to know that. I don't think that he keeps that from you. The scary part is, is when you actually then have to act on that. And yeah. it was scary because my wife was in anesthesia school at the time. She wasn't making any money. Um, she was going to school in the downtown. It made no sense for me to do what I did, but it made perfect sense to what I felt God was calling me to do. And so I've always had this sense and really the same sense of when I moved out of business in the ministry and then from Chicago to to California is that someday my kids are going to, I pray that someday my kids are going to come to me and say, I think that God's like calling me to do something like to do this radical thing, you know, whether it's start a business or whatever it might be. And I never want to be the guy that says, you know what, I want you to do that. Like I've never, I, I wasn't able to do that. I was too scared to do it myself, but you should do that. 
like, I want to be the dad that's able to say, yeah, you can do that. And, and you can look at me as an example of somebody that took a risk and, and went for it when it was scary. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so for me that those are driving forces for me. And, and I, you know, when I was at Augie, I was in charge, I was with the fellowship of Christian athletes. That's where I met uh, Sheree. I spoke around the state or spoke around some different things like that, sharing my testimony. And so I think deep down, I had an idea that eventually that would be part of my journey. I just didn't know it'd be in this capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just, I really think it comes back to listening and then obeying to be able to do what he's calling you to do. Okay. Okay. Um, what do you say, not to make this a, I'm not trying to make this a religious podcast, right? But like, there's a lot of people no. out there who lack a faith, sure, a belief, a, a calling, whatever that might be. Um, what advice would you have for someone in a position where they're, they're looking to make a, make a change, make a big move, but don't have that ability to kind of lean back on, you know, their faith or whatever that might be. Any advice for people in those situations? Yeah. Well, I, I, if we were to, to take the faith component and put it on the side for a second, which is, which is fine. I mean, I, I truly think that you have to, I, I would ask myself, what is going to, to not make me sacrifice my character or the integrity that I have, what sort of occupation or decision that would I make would make my family proud, would make my kids proud, would, would allow me to have my head held high at family dinners or for my kids to be able to say, yeah, my dad does this, you know, mm-hmm. like, I think those are important things. Like in, in my paradigm, um, I live off this pyramid of priorities that it's God, spouse, kids, everything else. Like I, I live my life by that. So I never get those things out of order. So I don't put my kids above my wife because that gets things out of order. My wife doesn't come before God. My job doesn't come before my family. So I really truly believe that if you can, if you want to take God off the top, then at the very least you should be your spouse, your kids, and then everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will also, I, I, I can't help but say that I think that you'll always be feeling a bit empty, even in those decisions, because it doesn't have the rooting and the grounding that I believe ultimately God is wired within all of us to be able to come back to. And so, um, I think that there always will be a desire for more mm-hmm. until you have that component with you, because I think you'll always be chasing the next thing and you'll never be able to find the true thing that, that God really is wired in you. So you don't think like some, that someone could find, you know, that peace, that contentment. Uh, I don't even know if those are the right words without having, you know, a faith in whatever God that might be for whomever it might be. Well, I mean, we we could get deep into this, man. This would be right. I mean, I I think there's this, you know, for, for my belief as a Christian, um, that, that, I believe that there is, there's no way to find the peace that everyone is looking for, which is the Bible would call it a peace that transcends understanding, meaning that you're at peace no matter what um, happens. And, and ultimately that the true peace that you're looking for is, is a question that no one really wants to think about. Um, but ultimately everybody will have to think about. It's that question of, okay, what happens when I die? Like yeah. what, what happens when this life is over? And if you can have peace with that answer, then all of a sudden this life takes on a totally different 
I think, um, rhythm with it, you know? Sure. Um, and so for me, that's, that's ultimately where if, if I can answer that question and know that my eternity is, is taken, then all of a sudden 10 U baseball looks a little bit different and my yeah. job looks a little bit different. And that fight I have with my wife looks a little different. And the, the scariness of taking a new role in a new city, leaving my family, it looks different because ultimately I have a piece that allows me to live differently. So I, I, I would say, and I've, and I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people throughout the years as a pastor. And even just as a, as a human being that the people that have found a relationship with God have a piece that's different than those that don't because they're always without that piece of God in your life, P I E C E or P E A C E, whichever you want to say it, you'll, you won't be able to, you'll always be searching for something else. Um, and I think Tom Brady actually said it best. He, he was interviewed by uh, Vanity Fair, might've been GQ magazine at one point when we were still with the Patriots and he made this comment. He says, I've made billions of dollars. I've got everything that I ever should want. I've got more championships that I ever could possibly think of. That was before he even won more. And he said this line at the end of it, he says, but there's gotta be more. He says, is this it? There's gotta be more. Mm-hmm. And so for somebody that literally is married to Giselle, right at the time has more championships <laughs> at the peak of your careers, more money than you would ever need for him to be able to even say, I don't have peace should tell you that there's gotta be something more than just that. So that's just kind of what I come back to. So uh, look, as someone who's wrestled with their faith, yeah, with a faith, whatever you want to call it throughout my entire life, whether it's just like, you know, is that real? Is it not? Um, you know, the, the amount of churches and different messages, you know, that are conflicting and all of those things, is it, do you see that there's like a possibility for someone without that, like to, to say, yeah, you know, I'm content or I have found peace, um, without marrying myself to, to, to a religion or something along those lines. Like I'm cool, like knowing this is it, you know, I get one trip. And I'm going to make the most of it and live my life to the maximum amount as I possibly can. And, you know, when it's all said and done, put me back in the dirt and let the earth recycle me. Sure. How do you have the, like, do you have those conversations a lot with people? Oh, sure. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And I think those are actually really good, good conversations to have because I think it's when you finally are honest about what you're wrestling with. And and I would tell you this up front, the, the church itself has done a terrible job of representing Jesus, like a terrible, terrible job because there's more infighting and denominations Mm -hmm. and who says this and what says that. And you know, that, that really, that really, I think even Jesus is like, y'all got to just stop. Like Mm -hmm. something's wrong, (laughs) you know? Sure. And, and so I would just say in, in those cases is number one, I wouldn't, I wouldn't walk away from Jesus because of the church, because I think that Jesus is better than what the church is offering at this point now. So, so what I mean by that is I would want you or whoever to be able to actually wrestle with it for yourself and not be able, not make a decision based on what somebody else's experience or Facebook's experience or Instagram tells you or whatever, or, or Kanye West tells you or whatever, you know, like that it should actually be a decision that you've researched and you've looked and you've a beat everything. Yeah. Um, Because there is the, I think it's Pascal way back in the day. I mean, he's the, the, the Pascalian argument is that, you can say, you know, I could, uh, when the life's over, I can go in the dirt. I'm all, all of a sudden done. The problem is, is that what if you're wrong? 
Right. So the question would be like, what if you're wrong about that? And there is a heaven and there is a hell. And then you could obviously volley that back and say, well, what happens if you, Brian, as a Christian, you get to the end of it and all you are is recycled dirt? What, what does that happen? Well, then I would have to tell, I would have to look at my life and say, well, how did I live my life then? I, I live my life wanting to love my neighbor as myself. Yeah. I love my life. I live my life wanting a peace that, that is bigger than what this world is. It doesn't get sucked in. Like I could, I could look at myself and if I end up being dirt, still look back at my life and say, that was a, that was a pretty good life, yeah. you know? And, and I don't think that I, I, I guess as I look at the risk reward on the other side of it, I think there's much more risk and very little reward versus the potential that the way that, that um, maybe I live my life comparatively. Sure. So I don't know. What do you so, think? So do you think that that's so like I, then my counter would be, well, that just seems like fear mongering. Like you're telling well, me I have to believe in something in order to achieve something. Um, because the alternative is what if I'm wrong? Right. And then I end up in the bad place or, you know, hell, whatever, sure. whatever, sure. whomever is calling it. Um, and look like spade to spade. I don't, I don't believe in organized religion as you mentioned, sure. right? Like we have done, I think men, you and me both, whatever side of the, of the aisle you may be on are extremely fallible and oh, yes. just, yes. you know, full of all the wrong things most of the time. And we work really hard to overcome them. And so I cannot imagine that at some point at some, you know, somebody got it right throughout history. It's been messed up and then messed up and then messed up and then, and we're just all doing our best. And so like, I, I personally, look, I think there is something, I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm not arrogant enough to, to attempt to define it. Um, because everything I've read, we can't understand it, right? So why, why we attempt to understand it and put it in these boxes um, is just seems very, it's too much for us to comprehend, right? We've, got, sure. we've all got a lot. Um, but I do believe sure. there is something, something out there. So I try to live my life uh, as, as well as I possibly can. You know, I'm, I'm loyal to my family, my friends, uh, my commitments, my word, and I try to treat people the right way. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. No one is, you know, and if that's not enough, that's not enough. And that's a, that's a piece sure. I've made uh, with myself. Um, but I'd like to think that if there is a God that is benevolent, um, that they would look at that and say, yeah, lived a good life. You're in. And if it's not, yeah. well, then that's on me. You know, it is what it is. But, you know, so, yeah. so how do you wrestle with that? You know, it's, it's this fear mongering, uh, Cause I have a lot of friends who are, you know, straight up atheists. I have a lot of friends who are very yeah. religious, you know, if I consider yourself one of them, right? Like you lead a church. So yeah. how do you wrestle with those arguments or people who have these conflicted feelings potentially? Well, I, 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 what I would start off by saying is that it's definitely not fear mongering because okay. uh, the, at least, at least the God that I, I believe in and the Jesus that I believe sure. in the farthest thing that he's instilling in us is fear. It's actually love. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a love that was demonstrated by, by, uh, by Jesus actually giving up his life for mm-hmm. us. And instead of like by staying in an ivory tower somewhere and say, you better figure it out and get it right. Or you're going to hell, you know, like there's no other religion where, 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 where there was a sacrifice made on behalf of humanity for the discret, for the indiscretions of them so that they could be made 
whole. Like there's, there's no other religion that's like that. There's grace doesn't exist in any other world religion at, at all. It's only through Christianity that you find this, this idea of grace of forgiveness, this idea that somebody else would do something for you because grace is, is actually the definition is unmerited favor. You're getting something that you don't deserve. So I don't think that's fear mongering. I really believe that's like unbelievably conditional, unconditional love because you could say, well, gosh, you know, you're, isn't it, um, you're saying it's exclusive, right? That only people that believe in, believe in, believe in Jesus are able to get to heaven. That's an exclusive religion. And I would actually say that it's a very inclusive religion because Jesus says everybody can come. Like he doesn't exclude anybody from being able to come. Mm -hmm. So there's other religions where if you don't make enough, you don't do enough nice things, you know, then God's going to be pissed at you and you won't be able to have whatever it is, the thousand versions that you give in, in, in Islam or whatever, or the reincarnation of the Samsara wheel or whatever you want to say. All of those are based on what you can do. Christianity is the only one that says there's nothing you can do. It's only because of Jesus and his grace that you have, if you want to call it a shot, right? That you have only through his grace. And for me, that actually is very freeing because then I don't have to think of, did I check all the boxes? Did I get, was I nice enough to enough, enough, enough people so that when I get to heaven, God's going to say, you got your 15 nice points. Now you're in. Instead, <laughs> it's, uh, instead it's really simple. It boils down to, yeah, did, did you believe in Jesus that, that he actually died for your sins in your place and that he loved you enough to do that and that you want to, and that he will be your savior. And if, if you're able to do that, then Jesus actually absorbs all of your wrongs, all of your hurts, all your habits. And, and that, that's what allows you to have rightness with God. Every other world religion you can look into it is about what you have to do in order to make God right or to get recycled the right way. And whatever version you get reincarnated as it's all based on you and that's really hard because what you really have to wrestle with is what's good. Like good is relative, isn't it? So what you, th- what you think is good. So let's, let's just say, um, I, I believe that being, being good to my wife is a good thing, right? I, I love Sheree. I think taking care of her is the right thing to do. It's a good thing. And so I love yeah. her. I treat her well, but if we go over to the middle East, they treat women terribly that, and, and, but that they think that what they're doing is good. So who's good wins whose version wins. Right. And then ultimately, then ultimately you have to say, well then, okay, well, if I say what my version's right and they say their version's right, well then how do we both get to the same place doing polar opposite things that we call ourselves good in? Mm-hmm. So then you, then you have to wrestle with, okay, is there something that's, that's higher than a higher morality in which we must like succumb to in order to know what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is not, what is evil and what is just right. And therein lies the question of that, that is where God lies. Like he has to be the overarching moral, the morality to, in which we define what morality is and what is good and what is bad. Cause if it's left up to you and I, no one wins because we come into what's called moral relativism, which means what's right for you is right for you, but it doesn't have to be right for me. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see happening in our society right now. It's imploding on itself because of moral relativism. And we're trying to cancel one another because we feel like if I cancel what you're saying, then I can still feel good about what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But if I, cause if I allow you to continue to talk, then you might say something that I don't agree with and I can't deal with that. Does that make sense? So Sort of. Yeah. Right. But that, again, that's just like part of the whole, I think for me, you know, the, the, the questioning and or confusion slash. And again, I, I'm not saying fear. I'm not saying you're trying to fear monger by any stretch no, of no, the imagination. No. Um, but if you don't believe in Jesus, um, 
you know, well, all the people of Islam don't get to go. And I guess, like, I believe that whatever it is up there, because, again, I do believe that there's something up there, is, you know, benevolent and loving and forgiving and that understands that we are, as a species, totally messed up. And so that, sure. you, know, a, you know, a billion people in India have the the wrong belief they don't get to go i just don't believe in that right i think that and again i don't think there's a scoreboard by any stretch of the imagination but i i I wrestle with that right the whole well what just because of where they were born or who the family they were born into they don't get that opportunity um that's something that i just kind of say "Mm, well i don't like that and and to say that i don't (laughs) wrestle with that stuff. I mean, I'm not some cold heartless guy. That's like, yeah, "Ah." you know, no, not at all. I mean, those are things that I think everybody will wrestle with for, for all eternity really. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think what, what, um, what's important to do is to, at the very least weigh them all out, right. To, to weigh out all these and to be able to see, you know, there's this, this interesting bumper sticker that comes across. You ever seen like coexist? You ever seen those bumper stickers? Yes. The the problem with that is that the people say that coexist, it's, it's impossible to do. Like it, it it virtually is impossible. We can, might, we might be able to exist with one another, but the religions themselves are, are, they cancel one another out. Like I said, you can't believe in Muhammad and, and Jesus. They're, different. You can't believe in Buddha and right. There's, they, they can't coexist because even in their own religions, they would say that the other religion is wrong. Like they just, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say like capitulate and say, you know what? Yeah, we probably are all on the same mountain going to the same place because we actually are climbing completely different mountains and purposely not, not, not accidentally purposely saying this is different than this. And this is the reason why you should follow Buddha as opposed to now Buddha didn't even believe he was God. So that's a different conversation together, but yeah. And I think that's where that's where I struggle, like with the whole concept of religion. Sure, Is sure. That- well, well, and that's the thing. Jesus doesn't call us to religion; he calls us to relationship, and that's completely different than anything else this world offers. Every other religion wants you to be religious to their their things. Yeah. So if it's Islam's creed, if it's this creed, if it's following these, if it's the number of times you're recycled through the world until you're able to get spun out until, you know, if it's karma, like it's all the, like, that's what, that's religion. Mm-hmm. You know, you could talk about uh, ancestor worship. I was in, I was in Taiwan and I saw what it looked like to go into a temple and have people worship their ancestors and put their last pennies in front of these, these altars. And it was great. Right. So there's, it's all about religion. If I do enough stuff, then God's going to be happy with me. If I do enough stuff, then my mom and dad that have already died, they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. But only in Christianity does it say like, there's not, there's nothing that you can do. In fact, it's already been done for you. And so we're going to offer you grace. And, and that grace is free to anyone that would want it. It's not about fear. It's about love. So you don't define Christianity as a religion? Well, I don't think that, I don't think that it, it's a religion by this, by the, um, by the definitions of our culture, but it's, it's, if you were to go back into the Bible that it originally was called the way, right? It, Christianity was originally known as the way, meaning if you, so in the Bible, there's uh, Acts chapter two is where you actually get to see the first church that's birthed based on Jesus. And so in Acts chapter two, um, in verses 42 through 47, it's an amazing description of what the first church was doing in the first church that was doing, it was crazy. They would meet together every day. They would eat together every day. 
if there was ever a need within their community of people, people would sell their property in order to meet the need of other people. No one was without, like it was this amazing community where everybody was just loving one another. And yeah. it was all centered around what Jesus had called them to do. So it, it's, it became a religion when we decided to put like the Catholic faith really made it become a religion when they started to put rules and regulations and they added things to the Bible that really are not even in there that caused it to become this weird schism that happened within Christianity. But the purity of what following Jesus is about is actually in Acts chapter two. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship. It's interesting. It's interesting, Brian. I didn't mean to go down this path. <laughs> it's all right. It's kind of uh, what I do, so it's yeah. all good. Uh, um, but I, I mean, that's a lot to kind of take in, and then you know, I, I did not want to make this a two-hour podcast with an hour of it, you know, debating religion <laughs> or uh, Christianity or Catholicism or anything like that. So I apologize. Um, but but that's just the way my mind works. Is like I kind of start to, you know, just I start asking questions, and off I go oh, down good. down a rabbit hole. I love hole. it. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there's, there's some fantastic books that if, if you ever wanted to read, um, um, one of them is called the case for Christ is one of the best books that's ever been written. It was written by an atheist, um, who was a, a lawyer atheist from Chicago, whose wife was a Christian and chose to go down the path of investigating Christianity to disprove it like he would any other case. Yeah. And it's a fascinating book if you ever want to read it because he unpacks it in a very atheistic manner. And his conclusion at the end is a very interesting one. So I'd, I'd, I'd recommend it to you or anybody that might be listening. Well, I will definitely give it a read. His uh, name's Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel. All right. All right. Um, well, yeah, man, I appreciate you taking the time today. This was yeah. fun. Um, we'll have to do it again. As you mentioned, get Ross on. Um, you said you were talking to Mitch. I got to get you, I got to get his number from you. I've been trying to reach out to him on Facebook oh, sure. or Instagram or whatever because I want to get him on here as well. He's got another interesting baseball journey that I'd love to talk about and you know get his perspective on. So, um, yeah, I think again, thank you so much. It means a lot that you would uh, give a give me an hour and a half of your time, and I, I think this was a really fun conversation. Just hearing your journey and what you're doing now, and you know maybe answering some questions for people, um, you know, towards the end or, uh, confirming beliefs, whatever you want to call it. Right. Uh, so yeah, I appreciate the time. Um, yeah, man, I, it means a lot. Thank you. Yeah. It is a great time, man. I, I, I love you, dude. And, uh, proud of what you're doing. If there's any, anything I can ever do for you, I'm always here for you. Love you too, B. Um, yeah, everybody, uh, thank you for listening, like share, comment, subscribe, do all those fun things. Uh, and until next time, everybody be good. 